Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Good to be back on the Red Tree Pod. Chris, how are you doing today? It's great to be back, Davis. Doing well. Doing well. It's a busy week. I've, I've been with a lot of pastors. I've been a part of a pastoral cohort this uh, this week with Acts 29 and then taking my uh, el- my pastors away, uh, other elders at my church for a retreat this, this week as oh, well. Nice. So I'm going to leave tomorrow up in northern Minnesota, so it'll be a good time. Yeah. Uh, so we usually get a lot of time just to kind of banter and, you know, hang out and laugh together, eat together. But, um, but yeah, talk business actually got a, a thing on what makes for good preaching, which we're going to look at, uh, this, this week. So I'm kind of looking forward to that uh. a little bit and, um, been thinking through the marks of it, what I've been learning and going to hear from them, of course, too, and do some workshopping, brainstorming and, and thinking through that issue of what, you know, what is, what is preaching <laughs> and what makes for good preaching? So, yeah. What are we actually doing here? I, th- I think that was, uh, I mean, anecdote time, story time with yeah, Uncle David. Story time. Uh, not even a story. I just think that that's a word that it means something at face value in culture that is almost the exact opposite of what it means in the church. Uh, I think to culture, you hear the word preaching and it's, it sounds like, oh, you're going to tell me what to do and you're going to share your values or not even share, you're going to shove your values onto me. Uh, and Christian preaching is almost the exact opposite of that. It's a proclamation of good news. It's a proclamation of what Jesus has done and it changes lives. Mm -hmm. That's why we proclaim it. This is why we preach it. Right. And I just think that, uh, yeah, the, the, when that difference becomes clear in people's minds, it's like, oh, I, I think I could I could use more of that in my life, more good news, more people actually proclaiming good good things about what God right, has done right. in the midst of sad things. So, yeah, is there anything on, yeah. uh, that you're excited to bring to those guys, just in terms of that? Yeah, I think similar stuff, and I think that does kind of come alongside this podcast a bit, and, and the Red Tree idea, a project, you know, is uh, hearing good news, you know, and just I think just uh, announcing grace and heralding something that you you haven't done, but that God has, and just how timeless that is and how refreshing how that never gets old and how but how important that is for that like the lifeblood of the church and the journey and, and the race of the Christian that we run is that we we just like a marathon runner needs something outside of them to kind of keep going like a bottle of water or a cup of water or I'm not a runner so I don't know if they, they eat or not or maybe a little energy bar or something but those are objective to them right they're outside of them and I think yeah. You know, just looking forward to that. I think just uh, these aren't new values to us, but talking afresh about you know what that means, where is that in the Bible? But especially, just what are we what are we seeing work, and and what do we want to be this next season? How do we want to herald? How do we want to preach? You know, not just be you know a, a knowledge or or information imparter, you know, but but a grace uh, saturator, a grace proclaimer. Yeah, I know the one that we've talked about quite a bit um, offline and even online, even with the podcast is. 
uh, just being stubborn in our separating of these two covenants, mm-hmm. using God's language uh, as we preach. Yeah. In, in other words, going law and gospel, these things are oil and water, and use that in, in the tool of proclaiming good news, because everyone is familiar with old. Everyone is familiar with law and its limitations, Mm -hmm. even if they don't have the categories for that. So clarify that as a category by showing where people are exhausted, man, and just like trying to self-save, trying to justify, trying to rescue themselves. Just just put your thumb on it and then label that as old and dying and unable to fix. Right. And then bring in God's work uh, via grace, via gospel, via new. Show that this is what Jesus has always been in the business of doing and be stubborn and separating those, not mixing them together. Yeah. I would say as a preacher that it, it never gets old, you know, looking at, you know, a congregation or, or a group and to kind of hold out a text or a story and to say, you, you thought this was about you, but it actually isn't. And just how you can just see relief, you know, come across people's faces. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I know I do as the one uh, hearing it myself, you know, uh, or even if I'm speaking it, hearing it myself, that um, we are hardwired to see ourselves as the hero and, and to see scripture as a list and, uh, and a, a chore, you know. But when it isn't, it becomes, wow, well, what is it then? Or, you know, is, is it possible that this idea was fulfilled perfectly by someone else or that that person is doing these things for me, you know, as, as a gift? And then it's out of my hands completely. Um, never gets old. No, to, it doesn't. Do and I, I'm actually doing a funeral this week. And so I've been reading up on a lot of obituaries as we're trying to put all these things together for it. And I, I was reading my, my grandma's obituary actually. And uh, there was a lot of traditional language and how it was written. Um, and especially around who is now surviving my, my grandmother. And uh, it was it, it, anyone's name was written. It was husband's name. And then in parentheses, it was the wife's name. Um, and that's somewhat common still nowadays, but it's more of a traditional thing. And it just got me thinking about exactly what you're describing with regards to not being our work. It's a, it's a phrase that I like to use in, in class, which is the gospel says that you and I are parentheses now, that our, our life is, is not actually the point. We're put in parentheses uh, of the greater husband. I mean, just to use the same imagery of an obituary, it's our life is about the ultimate groom, the ultimate husband, and we are we are found in parentheses, but it's freeing to be found in those parentheses, that we are attached to him, and it is actually about his work, which is, yeah, just really freeing and, and encouraging. Uh, in other news, I bought a minivan this week. That's my last life update for Congratulations. you. Congratulations. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a little bit of a, a quarter life or a midlife crisis that one might have in buying a minivan. Uh, some would do it other ways, but I, I purchased a moving living room and I couldn't be <laughs> more happy about it. There's no, there's nothing else to say other than we're proud and they, I've just never known so much space. I, I, yeah. I proclaim the good news of space oh, I think as we travel. I think they're great. I own one too. We both have Sienna's now. That's which is uh, Sienna buddies. Uh, Yeah. So congratulations, man. Welcome to the club. It's good to be here. And on that note, we can talk about Isaiah. That's what we're going to talk. First and foremost, we're going to read Isaiah 19. Uh, Look at the latter half. And then our psalm for the day is Psalm 88. Pull up a a chair on that one. That is the darkest psalm uh, that is in the Psalter. So uh, we'll probably have to slow down and, and think on that one a little bit together. Then we got 2 Corinthians 4 before we finish up with the parable of the sower as our but what about passage. But to begin with, let's talk Isaiah. So uh, Isaiah is, is this prophet in the Old Testament that actually in and of itself kind of has a, a biblical motif, meaning 
the whole book kind of acts like a mini Bible. There is even, I think there is 66 chapters and 66 books in the Bible. And so I think God is, is really intentional with what he's trying to do with Isaiah. And I, ah, man, on the spot, I do think he's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, or at least Sounds implicitly right. the allusions there are just so strong, especially with regards to the suffering servant and some of the more explicit examples we have of connections to Jesus. Um, but when reading any prophet, I do want to just begin with just like a, a little helpful handle to hold. And that is generally speaking, there are kind of three major themes to be on the lookout for while you're reading prophets, because they're just hard to read sometimes, man. So they getting lost in some of the big language, um, getting lost in some of the apocalyptic language, even at times, it's just really easy to kind of be, uh, spinning around in the water, not knowing up from down as these prophets are speaking. So the three themes to kind of be on the lookout for is the first one being any form of judgment or proclamation over Israel and Judah. So these are the two kingdoms, the divided kingdom of God's people. And this is representative of a failure of the old covenant or, or an exposure of sin. The law is preaching about Israel's inability to actually do what God has calling them to do. But it's also foreshadowing in particular, all that Christ is going to take on as he endures that judgment. The second theme which is going to have a lot to do with what we're going to see today in Isaiah. Uh, let's see, is the judgment on other nations. So this is going to foreshadow Christ's destruction of sin and death, which is going to ultimately our true enemies. Because these other nations, especially in the Old Testament, this is that physical picture of a greater spiritual reality. But Israel's constantly thinking, man, our big problem is these other nations. It's the Egypts, it's the Assyrias, it's the megabytes, gigabytes, gigabytes, all the bytes <laughs> of the Old Testament, right? And the prophets are regularly calling down judgment on these other nations, but that's not to just be read as locked in time as these specific people being judged. And then the third is just a note of grace and hope. It's a re There's so much talk of, of a return of greater significance, especially of a return to the land. You have things about the temple being rebuilt, but in much greater fashion than it ever had been before. You have an eternal, quote unquote, David, who is going to lead uh, perfectly forever. And in this, God is going to be doing a new thing that will surpass the former thing. So those three things are, they're really helpful when navigating the prophets. The first, again, judgment on Israel. The second is judgment on other nations. And the third is grace and hope. But with that in mind now, I think we can turn to Isaiah 19, verses 16 to 25. Grace, yeah. So I think uh, another thing too is that um, kind of along the lines of that second one, well, all three really, is that the prophets are using Old Testament language or Old Testament historical language to talk about the future. So kind of like you were saying, Davis, like if when Egyptians come up, that's not really a present day reality. You know, it's it's almost an apocalyptic kind of prophetic or typological callback, you know, to when Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians. And, and Isaiah is basically saying that another Egypt-like thing or Exodus is going to happen again, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast. And so uh, it's it's a sign that another exodus is coming when God is going to overcome Egyptians that should, you know, raise or send off bells, you know, in our head of like, wait, we've, we've seen this before in the story. And, you know, so it's kind of this uh, interposing thing in the Bible where you have the prophets saying that the old things are going to happen again, but in a new, fresh kind of cosmic big picture way. 
And so for the Egyptians and to be brought up, we, we look ahead to Christ and we see, well, how does Jesus do this? How is he in, a, in his own way, kind of an Egyptian slayer, you know, but not physically so, not with actual Egyptians or pharaohs, but with our ultimate enslaver, which is sin. Or you could say the thing that enslaved us or helped to enslave us being the law, how will that be overturned ultimately? And that being by him being a new covenant maker, you know, one built on his blood and body, not upon, you know, the two, the two stone tablets of the law that immediately incited sin, right? And, and drove people further away from from God's presence and really did so uh, uh, throughout throughout history. So, Yeah, which is so surprising because as, as we open up Isaiah 19, uh, especially the first half, which we're not going to spend a ton of time on today, but it is just, it's all the judgment on Egypt and Assyria, these these enemies of God's people. And God does say, I'm, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring destruction onto them. But then there's this turn of the corner that begins in verse 16 and brings us to the end of the chapter that starts to use language like, in that day, the Egyptians will become small. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of the sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and he will rescue them. And it goes on and on. So what we're seeing is this all of a sudden this turn of phrase where what what began with judgment, even as I was reading, it was, it was judgment towards these two. But then there's this turn where all of a sudden these enemies are being given the same language that God's people are given. Language of uh, sharing the same language, language of sharing a commitment to God, language of worshiping God, and then God promising to offer rescue and deliverance and proximity and relationship to these people that were supposed to be destroyed, to these people that were standing in opposition to God. God is now using language of family, language of welcome that was once reserved for just Israel. Hmm. Also, I really like in verse 24, uh, in that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria. So to say that Israel is kind of in third place behind these two historical enemies uh, of them as a people is is really interesting, almost kind of a, a sense to which uh, Christ himself would come to fulfill that idea that he's ultimate Israel. He's the one who's going to become lessened so that his enemies can have uh, a seat of priority, you know, in a sense at, at, at the table. You know, it's a very kind of uh, self-lowering, you know, kind of idea here and kind of a shock and a surprise, right? And, and like we say a lot, when grace comes in and kind of, you know, starts to direct the story, there's always surprises. There are left turns, there's twists, there's things you don't expect. And and here you're thinking, well, why is Israel, I thought they were the preferenced people in a sense, uh, at least the chosen people of God. And, and we know they were in one sense of the word, but here to see that in the future, Israel will be third is a sense to say, or is in a sense to say that Christ himself will be, will be third or will be lessened. He'll, he'll become lower than the angels, as Psalm 8 says, and Hebrews 2 quotes, that he'll become low like us to die for people like us in that very low state of sin and death and, and burial. Well, on the note of low state of sin and death and burial, we turn to the low state of Psalm 88. Uh, you can't coach that type of transition right there. That's just, that's raw talent or lack thereof. 
One uh, day, yeah. one day you too can, can, can transition like and that. five if easy just... steps and three easier payments. <laughs> psalm 88, it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, and it's actually written by a guy named Heman, the Ez- Ezraite. And I actually prefer the pronunciation of He-Man uh, in the spirit of the cartoon. Much cooler. With, yes, and much bigger muscles. Um, yeah, just, just to pickpocket a few of these uh, verses throughout just to give her the overall sense of the psalm, which it's, it's incredibly dark. You can't overstate the level of uh, darkness and despair that are, that are in these words. It says this, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. My, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness to destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of the oblivion? You have taken from me, friend and neighbor, darkness is my closest friend. And again, that's just a a hopping through a a couple of verses to capture just how filled with despair this individual is who is writing it. And uh, I I think there's a lot of places to go just to really meditate on what is this psalm driving towards. Uh, I was taken by the language uh, and just the questions that are being asked in verses 11 and 12. So again, that is, is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? And then that very end, that's just the phrase, darkness is my closest friend. So this, this questioning of is God's light, is God's life really being talked about in the place of ultimate darkness and ultimate death? And to wear the hat that we often wear in this podcast of saying, before this psalm is about us, it does have a divine perspective Uh, In other words, it's the song of Jesus himself. And so if you hear Jesus asking this question, especially pre-cross, it becomes a real invitation to see all that he's actually come here to do. He's saying, is is what God is doing declared amongst the place of darkness? Are, Are God's righteous deeds known in the land of oblivion? And then when he dies in our place, he goes to the land of oblivion on our behalf and does what? He brings the light of God, the the hope of the world, and he lights up that darkness so that anyone now who experiences darkness, and that's every human being under the sun in a fallen world, can know that God is doing something far beyond our work, that there is a power that, that caused the resurrection that belongs to God. And the New Testament is confidently saying that that power is not us but that power is working through us by God so that wherever we are right now in the midst of darkness, or if ever we can say along with the psalmist, darkness feels like my closest friend, we can know God is still at work in the, in the life of, uh, he was at work in the life of He-Man, and he is at work now in the life of us who are experiencing these things. And the last thing I'll say about that is the, this verse from Isaiah 45, uh, since we're in Isaiah today. I believe it's verse three, and it says this, God speaking, he says, I will give you, and here's this phrase, I just hold on to this phrase, I will give you treasures of darkness, mm. that you may know I am the Lord who called you by name. 
this, this, this God is going to give us treasures of darkness. That flips our concept of richness and treasures on its head because we think, well, it'd be nice to just have treasures of comfort. And he says, no, in darkness, there's going to be something that happens to you that's going to allow you to see that it really is my power that pulls you out of darkness. It really is my light that cannot be expunged in the presence of darkness, even if for a moment it feels like it is. And then if you just take that in light of the perspective of, of He-Man who wrote this, uh, or every, however you pronounce his name, this is the guy who actually was leading a guild of, of musical writers uh, who, who contributed to writing a good portion of the Psalms if, outside of David. And so you think of these, these people who experience so much, so many trials and so many dark seasons of, and seasons of doubt, for sure, that, that this Psalm is even filled with. But what did God do with that? Through this, God wrote these Psalms now that millions, if not billions, have encountered the living Lord of the universe through and learned how to pray Jesus's words after. And it came about through these treasures of darkness that were given to individuals like He-Man and Jesus and, and ultimately now us. Love that. Yeah. And I would just even add on a couple of uh, typological, almost kind of anchor points here to what you're saying before about this being Christ's song. Uh, You know, when you, when you see things like in verse seven, where it says your wrath lies heavy on me, or in verse nine, I spread out my hands to you, uh, very cruciform imagery there in verse 14, why do you hide your face from me? Uh, These are all things that Jesus did, right? And so the the psalmist here is a, uh, he's a forerunning sufferer in a way, a forerunning singer about suffering that Jesus would later kind of take on on a much higher level for us so that it's through his death, it's through his substitutionary death and love that we find life uh, as sufferers ourselves, as people who are held down and or whether we're comfortable. I mean, either way, uh, the the gospel is for both. Uh, It's for, there's no partiality, right? So whether we have days of non-suffering and comfort or days of suffering, that the message is the same because it's outside of us. Uh, and I would add verse six as well, uh, which is interesting and kind of a, a bit of a twist in itself where it says, uh, you have put me in the lowest pit and even in the very dark places of the depths. And so our, so I think to me that says, uh, so, so that um, Christ, if this is Christ's song, it reminds us that our pains are always lesser. Uh, it, it's a sign that um, he comes down to the lowest places of the earth, even even deeper to save us. You know, so we're as sufferers, we're not trying to climb out of it ourselves to where God is, but we're reminded as Christians that God is a descender. He comes down to us and not just down in a temporal kind of like a physical sense, though that's true, but one who comes down in order to suffer for the sake of sufferers. So in our suffering, we look, we don't look to the, the resolution of that physical suffering in this life, you know, as if it were based on our strength, we look to the one who just came close to us and, and died in, in our place. Yeah, the last thing I'll say about this psalm too, and, and some people have, I think, wisely connected this to the story of Job. And if you think of how Job is framed, it begins with Satan asking God this question. You know, that you're, you're so pleased with Job, this guy who serves you, and who it's because you've given him a bunch of stuff. And so Job 1.9 says, does Job serve God for nothing? This is Satan speaking. Uh, in other words, let, let me have my hand, let me have my way with him, and I, I'll show you Job will not worship you. And then, of course, after 38 or 42 chapters of it, it's at the end when he's stripped, you know, without all the things, he, he does still serve God. He still worships him. And he looks a lot like the writer of the psalm who uh, I think it's at least three times we hear this, this writer who is suffering in the midst of troubles that are overwhelming him, overwhelming him to the point of death, just still say, but I'm crying out to you. 
I cry out to you. You hear my cry. I call to you, Lord, every day, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. And this is before this says to us, hey, pray a lot during your suffering. It again shows us a, a better and truer version of Job, who the most righteous one who suffered on our behalf, who never relented from pursuing God's face, even in the midst of the darkest darkness. And so look at him in the midst of your darkness and find that he is now even resurrected and interceding for you at the right hand of God. And he's never going to stop doing that and find great comfort in the fact that even if you don't feel him, he's still there. The vital reality of his proximity to you does not change based on the feelings that you have in the midst of hard seasons, which is good news. And actually connects well to our passage in Second Corinthians 4 today, which could just be basically titled Weakness Now, Resurrection Forever. Uh, and this this looks a lot uh, like, again, Psalm 88. So a uh, couple of sections here to break down. The first talks about knowing God's mercy through his through the ministry that we have. It's easy to lose heart because we it's easy to want to turn to other things. But he says, no, we don't do that. Rather, we have renounced secret and, sh- and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the true the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 4. And I wanted to read the whole thing uh, because this is where we get a lot of our hermeneutic or our interpretive grid is whenever we see the New Testament reaching back on an Old Testament idea or passage and then bringing more light. You can think of it like a window shade being pulled back and more sun is coming in. And that light is always connected to Christ somehow. And here we have Genesis 1 language, right? We have the, the, the first creation, old creation um, imagery being borrowed and brought in. And then somehow a dial is just turning up and saying almost like, uh, you know, there's a lot of connections that we can make about the old sacrificial system and Moses being like a blueprint of Christ coming and being a better sacrifice than what was there. But there was a blueprint that could be found there. Now the New Testament is saying, just like creation, when God, sh- when God spoke light into darkness and out of nothing, he created all things. This is the New Testament saying that actually when he did that, that was about a greater spiritual reality. Namely, that light is Christ himself speaking into the dark void of our hearts and saying light. He's saying believe. He's saying faith. He's saying look at the glory of God in the face of Christ and now in the nothingness of our hearts, believe which is just an incredible uh, tool to have, not only in reading all, uh, all of the Bible, but even as we go back now and read Genesis 1 to go, holy cow, this is one of many ways that Jesus is present, even in that text, mm. as well as this one. Mm. Love that. Yeah, so helpful. I think, um, yeah, and it's kind of keep reading then and uh, past, in, past verse 7, uh, really, which is where Paul kind of does that. You start to see him talk in, in terms of um, pain, right? This is, this is a very vulnerable uh, section of one of Paul's letters where he's describing his suffering. This kind of, I think this came up maybe in a previous podcast, actually in an article, I think, uh, Davis, you just wrote too uh, for Red Tree, but uh, that Paul is um, not shy about letting his churches know that he loves them through suffering. And he's not bragging, he's just expressing the fact that, as he says here in this section, that he's carrying around in his body 
the the death of Jesus. Uh, it's it's given over to death for Jesus's sake, but but he's carrying it around, you know, and, and his sufferings are somehow kind of productive, you know, uh, for the sake of comforting another church. And so he he wants them to know that, so that almost like a channel, they'll like look through it. It's almost like Paul's sufferings are translucent, and they can see through it, and they can see Jesus on the other side, who is the ultimate one who suffered that that they might have life and encouragement and comfort and be spared things that someone else's is bearing. And so that's, I think, where we have to be careful with these letters with Paul is to not too quickly see ourselves in him. Because a lot of times in the Christian life, we're the recipients or the, or the beneficiaries rather of someone else's sufferings, like say a Christian leader, uh, or maybe it's it's a wife who is uh, you know benefiting from a husband who loves her dear, dearly and who suffers for her somehow and how he serves her or a parent to a child or something like that. Uh, to say that it's it needs to always be us being Paul in every instance of our life, I think, takes away the drama. It, it, mm-hmm. it takes away at the place of being a recipient, like we're all recipients of God being the greatest uh, giver uh, giver of of all time. So, yeah, really good. And and with that, we can now turn to the parable of the sower. So this is kind of the parable that frames all of the parables in the New Testament. It's kind of the starting point, and it's one of the first places that we really see Jesus start to speak in this language of hiding, of uh, ultimately saying like, hey, those who are going to listen to me, yeah, you've been you've been called to come and listen, but I'm, I'm saying this in complicated ways for a reason. There's design, there's intent behind it. And we're going to be looking at uh, a few parables in the weeks ahead as we go through our But What About section. So we felt it was appropriate to begin with this parable of the sower. There's several places. It comes up in every synoptic gospel. So that'd be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In uh, Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 13. In Mark, it's chapter 4. And then Luke, it's chapter 8. Uh, but essentially, he, he just describes a farmer going out to sow seed. And as he's scattering seeds, some falls along the path and the birds come and eat it up. Then some falls on rocky places where it doesn't have much soil and it springs up quickly. But because the soil is shallow, um, when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they were with and they withered because they had no root. Then he goes on to describe other seed falling among thorns, which grew up and, and actually choked the plants out. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear, he says. And this uh, is one among uh, very few parables that Jesus actually goes on to go, I know you guys don't understand this, so so let me break it down for you. And then he actually says that the seed is the word and that the word is going out and it's having a different response among these four different types of soils. But the reason we want to zoom in on this in a but what about section here of the podcast is to... um, kind of talk about two mistakes that are common in reading this. The first is probably the easiest one, which is to, like we do with Paul, insert ourselves right away as the farmer going around sharing God's word with people and saying, hey, we're going to get different responses. Now, there's a place to talk about that, especially with regards to application, but it's not first and foremost the meaning of this parable. And it's not the place where I think we're supposed to start at unraveling what is God actually trying to say. Because anytime he's speaking in parables, he's usually, again, using this element of surprise. He's trying to slow us down, and there are details in the parable that make you go, that doesn't look like my intuition. You know, think of the the shepherd who leaves 99 sheep behind to go and pursue one. It's just like, wait, th- I think this is teaching us something about the shepherd before it's saying anything about what we're supposed to do. Right. 
And that's often happening with parables. So that's the first uh, wrong turn to make when going after the parable of the sower. The second one is something that you'll probably come in contact with at more of a popular level uh, of Christian reading, which is to say, I think the phrase that comes to mind that I've heard is, don't assume you're good soil, which is, I think it's a good starting point. You know, don't assume you're, uh, uh, there are four soils here that are listed, right? Birdie, rocky, thorny, and good. So don't assume that you're the one of you're the right category here, the one fourth uh, correct category. Uh, but the the mistake is what's said next often, which is so make yourself good soil, right? Like that's ultimately what gets described as okay. If you're in the thorny soil, and this is usually being couched in salvation language, make sure you really try and get to become good soil. But Jesus is intentional with his choices of analogies. And soil itself is utterly powerless at changing itself, right? Like it's a, it's a living object for sure. And it causes things to happen in it, but bad soil cannot make itself good soil. Thorny soil cannot make itself unthorny. Birdie soil cannot shoo away the birds. These things are locked in place and they need to be worked on, which brings up, I think the first uh, glaring surprise of the passage, which is just how terrible of a farmer this farmer is, right? Like, especially in an agricultural society when this is his means of living and he probably didn't have a ton of resources. And he's just out there liberally throwing the soil, not caring where it's going. It's landed on the path. Birds are eating it up. He's seen these birds before, but he still doesn't care. He's throwing it on the rocky soil. He's throwing it on the thorns. And then he's throwing it on the good soil. And I think like the bad shepherd analogy, it's meant to slow us down and go, what is this farmer doing? Then if we zoom in even more on the word itself, this this word is not just us and what we're interpreting God to be doing in the world. The word is capital J Jesus himself, right? Like God, the father is liberally throwing Jesus to and fro and different people are responding very differently. And this almost becomes a blueprint of what he's going to do in his ministry as people are going to receive or reject exactly what Jesus is going to be doing. This passage first is about God the Father and what he's doing through Jesus Christ and his ministry before it is about you and I and what we're called to do. Mm. Yeah, and as you look even deeper then, uh, kind of off that idea that the farmer sows the word, this is from Mark 4.14 and how Jesus helpfully explains it, right, or kind of gives us more clues into what he's actually doing. He's, he's talking about himself. Jesus elsewhere, actually in John 12, talks about himself as a seed uh, that dies and falls to the ground and produces fruit. And so we, we know that this has precedence elsewhere in the New Testament for seeing Jesus in, a, in, a, in an agrarian kind of way, you know, but looking even deeper at the soil types themselves too, and, and again, kind of being cautious not to see too quickly ourselves in them, you can see that Jesus there too, I think, takes on almost the the harm or the the threat of, of the the three bad soils, you know, so whether it's, it's the birds, themselves just biblically are likened to, to dark angels, you know, or unclean animals, uh, or the, the, the think of how the devil is called the prince of the power of the air, uh, you know, or and how the, the devil kind of incited Judas to, to crucify Christ, right? Or uh, you also have with the, uh, the sun, how Jesus died during the day in a kind of a sun-scorched way, uh, or uh, maybe the more obvious, the thorns, how he wore a crown of thorns as well. Like Jesus is taking on uh, the, the, the cursed dimension of these soils types, uh, you know, to say that I'm the one that's going to produce good soil. And, and I just actually just had this experience with Aletha the other day. We just added compost to our soil uh, at home. It took a gardener to do that, right? And, and fertilizer. We, we actually rented a tiller and, 
and tilled it up really deep and nice. But it took, you know, it took, it was a kind of a half day project to really do all of that, you know, and, and the good news of the gospel is that God is the gardener, uh, but also the one that incurs the suffering. He, he incurs the curses a lot of times in the scripture when we see this, instead of seeing a, just a quick binary moral lesson of, of don't do the bad, but instead do the good. We have Jesus coming to say, I'll take on the bad for you, the one who's incapable of choosing the good and incapable of being that good soil, uh, him or herself. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod.